Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is uh, coming in from New Orleans. Uh, would you like to uh, introduce yourself, Nathaniel? Uh, hi, my name is Nathaniel Adams. I'm a writer and uh, clothing designer based in New Orleans. Um, uh, my company, my clothing label is called Natty Adams, and it's custom tailored clothing for men and women. Uh, and I've written a few books about menswear uh, with the photographer Rose Callahan uh, called I Am Dandy and We Are Dandy. Um, and I write other stuff as well. And that's that's me. Now, the dandy books are how I sort of came into contact with you. Um, magnificent work. I don't know Thank how much you. they weigh. They're about a kilo each, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you talk a bit about the background for the books and the process? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. It's one of the, I feel like Rose and I were both um, separately, independently interested in, in a similar thing, which was this idea of dandyism, and we came along at the right time where this was a topic that was in the air. Because I feel like in the late two thousands, early twenty ten kind of time was when menswear was beginning to have this big revival, um, and there was lots of talk about men's clothing. Um, I know that subscriptions to all of the sort of classic menswear magazines like GQ and Esquire and all that kind of stuff would go back up again and tailored clothing was in. Um, so there was a lot of uh, interest in that kind of content. Uh, at that time, I had been trying to pitch a book about the history of dandies, um, which was my background and something I'd been working on since I was an undergraduate uh, at NYU. So I had been writing about people like Bill Rummel and Oscar Wilde and um, very much people in the past, you know, sort of the most recent people I had in mind were Tom Wolfe uh, and, you know, uh, Gates Elise or something. Uh, I wasn't sort of focused on the world of contemporary menswear dandyism in that way. My background is in, my educational background is, is in literature and history. So that's what I was focused on. Um, but nobody really seemed to want to buy that book, unfortunately. And I was getting a bit frustrated. And at some point, uh, while I was, you know, Googling dandy stuff, I came across this photo blog called The Dandy Portraits by Rose Callahan. And I realized that she'd been photographing some of the people that I'd been interviewing um, already. And I thought, well, that's interesting. She lived in New York and I lived in New York at the time. And so we got in touch and we met up. And at first we were quite sort of guarded about our own projects. And I thought, oh, yeah, I don't really... There wasn't, there was an idea, there was kind of a feeling like, oh, this is not going to be a sort of collaboration or something. We're just sort of uh, kind of tentatively curious about what the other person was doing. Um, but we became friends, and then uh, the Chat Magazine in London, uh, who I'd been writing some columns for, uh, said, oh, we want to send you to this sort of vintage event. Um, do you know a photographer who could go with you to photograph it? I said, oh, yeah, I'll ask, I'll ask Rose Callahan. So she came along and we worked so well together and got along, you know, incredibly well. Um, and from then on, we kind of thought, okay, well, maybe maybe there is some future for us to work together. And um, she randomly was approached by our publisher, Gestalten, uh, from Germany about her blog, about her photo blog. And she very kindly uh, said, yeah, I'd love to do a book, um, but I'd love to have uh, Nathaniel Adams write the text. Which, which was, you know, probably the most important thing anyone's ever done for my career. Um, 
because she very easily could could have put out a book of just her photographs. They they're strong enough to stand on their own, and that's typically the kind of fashion book that you see these days. You know, it's like street style or even the the, the advanced style books by Ari Seth Cohen uh, of you know senior citizens who have great style. Even those have have pretty minimal text. They have a few little quotes here and there and all that kind of stuff. There's not really anything. There wasn't anything out there that was full length profiles of of people alongside pictures about uh, about their clothing, about their style. So, um, so what? Very, very, very. She very kindly said, "Yeah, I'd love Natty to write profiles of all these people." And Gestalt said, "Yeah, that sounds like a great idea." Which was, I think, showed incredible. Um, guts and foresight on their part because I, I do think that the, the text and the pictures work well together um, because I think for both me and Rose going into the project we realized it wasn't really about the clothing itself we weren't going and talking to these people and saying oh tell me what you're wearing um, it was much more about the personality and the psychology and the emotions that go into why these men are so interested in dressing up and where it comes from and what they see the point of it as because you know to so many people when i first told them what my project was and it's interesting because back then even you know 15 years ago 10, 10 years ago I, when i said dandy a lot of people looked at me with a completely blank face and i feel like that's that's actually changed a lot now people that word is in quite common cur currency these days when i told people what i was writing that they were sort of like why, why would anyone be interested in guys who spend all their time dressing up well you haven't seen these guys yet and then when people read the profiles um and i was delighted to find out that people actually had read the profiles when, I, when we met them at book events or or things they'd come up and talk to me about the people in the book and what they learned about them and they weren't just just looking at rose's beautiful photographs they were also interested in who the people were because i feel like with fashion editorial you know that's where people are taking photographs of people in nice clothing and it's meant to kind of create an image uh provoke desire in a cons consumer or something like that and then with street style you get these little snapshots of kind of people looking cool on the street but i like the idea of real people who aren't doing this for who aren't necessarily doing this you know as a purely commercial thing um people who love dressing up um and I just, I always want to know what, what makes them tick, what, the, what got them into it, uh, what their inspirations are. And this was an opportunity to ask them. So uh, that's, the, that's the long version of the story, I guess. That and is... then the first, the first book did so well that, the, that they, they asked us to do a second book, which was really great. I have to say that I agree totally with, uh, with the need for the text or the value of the text, because I'm definitely a word person. So I'll look at the photos, make up an opinion of who this is, but then I'll enjoy the text. So yeah. it had just been the photos, well, nice photos and all, but it would have left me wanting. And I feel like the text often surprised people or, or uh, maybe – um, undercut some of their prejudices or presuppositions about what these kind of men were. I think people assumed all kinds of things about them. Like, okay, well, these guys must be, you know, uh, independently wealthy. Uh, they must all be gay. They must all work in fashion. They must, you know, it, they had a particular kind of idea of, of the type. And then you see that it's actually this huge range of people who are doing it for all kinds of different reasons and, you know, have all these different backgrounds and stories. I think that was the 
aside from the fact that they're all people who identify as men in the books, it is a very diverse bunch within that, you know, um, umbrella. Now we'll get into actually where you found all these people afterwards, but if you were to define the idea of a dandy, how would you do that? That was always a really difficult thing, especially going into the the book. I think because Rose and I, Rose had a very visual kind of definition where she would see someone who had uh, a kind of eccentric flair to the way they dressed up. Um, and it was usually our first our first thing was that it was a man, um, because the idea of a well dressed woman wasn't. It wasn't sort of in the contemporary world considered particularly remarkable. Uh, it was, in fact, w- what women were kind of told they should aspire to. Um, you know, beauty products and all that kind of stuff are marketed heavily towards women. Uh, so w- the first thing was that this was this was men who were sort of who had remarkable or notable style, and the idea being that they dressed up rather than dressed down or had you know were were sportswear or streetwear people. Um, yeah, yeah. So, people who dress up, people who um, who have a sort of well, sort of, okay. What I said, basically, just there. Um, you can cut that part out. But um, Ro- so Rose had a very kind of visual eye for like, okay, yeah, I think this person is dandy. All that. I had I had some more, I think, kind of intellectual criteria from my historical research that went along with it. That I thought that. I kind of graded dandies in my mind based on the, the historical people that I'd studied. I, I thought like, you know, really true dandy is someone who, who is not involved in the clothing business, really, um, who, who doesn't have to dress up for some, for any reason other than their own personal, you know, feeling of doing it. Um, I also had this idea that a dandy should be a witty person, that, that dandyism in a kind of, in I think in an intellectual or academic sense, would I would define simply as as wit and style combined. Um, so there's this idea that they had to have some intelligence um, and some reasoning about all this kind of stuff. Um, they couldn't just be a clothes hanger. Um, but as we went on, I mean, there are obviously people in the book who. So I think when Rose and I first started doing the first book, it was kind of like, oh well, we know a dandy when we see one, uh, and we're going to have to. And as we went on and, and photographed all, and interviewed all these diverse men from all these different places, all these different ages, occupations, uh, you know, races, all, cultures, uh, we realized that you know these guys are all very different from each other. Like, you know, if you put them all in a room together, they wouldn't necessarily have a lot in common, other than that they'd all be dressed up. But even in even in their styles, you know, some people were more traditional conservatives, some people were more fashion forward and kind of wild, and some people were, you know, hardcore vintage. Um, but we realized, okay, well, we have to figure out, based on all these people, before we put out the book, in the introduction to it, I'm going to have to figure out what the sort of working definition of a dandy is based on what all these men have in common. And so what I came up with at the time was uh, a man who's obsessed with personal elegance, um, which I think is a kind of a neat um, term that's both flexible enough and specific enough to work properly um, because it can apply to people who, you know, who just wear, uh, you know, very, very conservative Ivy League style or something. And it can also apply to people who wear makeup and, you know, hats with feathers in them and stuff. Um, So it's, 
it's a psychological definition. Um, and in the I sort of half jokingly in the intro to the first book, talk, sort of cast dandyism as a, as a, as an affliction that that some people have, and that it's uh, you know not something that can be helped. <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, so that was that was our definition after the first book came out, and I think it helped a lot when it came time to do the second book to kind of figure out who and what should go who who should go into that and why. Um, but so yeah, the, that definition is something we arrived at after actually completing a lot of the work. It's interesting because it sounds like you were sort of on the verge of defining a dandy as a Renaissance man, but reeled it in a bit. Yeah. I think when Rose and I went into the book, we we had such we loved the topic of dandyism so much that we wanted to sort of believe that all the best things about dandies. Um, you know, we wanted to think, oh yeah, all all dandies are intelligent, uh, witty, um, urbane, cultured, um, you know, open-minded people. And the fact is that, that they're all all kinds of different people um, <laughs> I was waiting for you to say, and it turns out none of them are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny. So, you know, even so also whenever you're doing a book, um, even if Rose and I were the core collaborative pair here, but there also were editors who, who were giving us feedback and stuff. And there were people who made it into both books who, uh, you know, I wasn't particularly enthusiastic about them, but Rose was, or Rose wasn't particularly enthusiastic about them, but I was. Like there, I mean, there were people who weren't maybe the most visually striking people, but I'd had conversations with them where I was like, this person has something very interesting to say about all this. Um, and so they ended up in the book. Or there were people who didn't really have that much to say about it um, for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, particularly people, who, uh, there were often people who worked in fashion who, if you tried to get them to talk about themselves, they just kept trying to talk about their brand. And that was very frustrating because uh, we didn't want the book to be about that. Um, we didn't want them to treat this like a, you know, Instagram post for themselves or like an extra long Instagram post. So there were people who didn't give me much to work with, but who took, who had, Rose had incredible photographs of. And then our publisher also had thoughts about who should and shouldn't be in the book. So there are people who I, would say are less dandy than others and who Rose would probably say are less dandy than others. Um, but I would say we're less dandy than others sort of, um, yeah, intellectually or psychologically. And she would say, uh, less, um, you know, visually dandy or something. Hmm. Uh, that, that happened in both books. But the selection of people you feature in the two books mm. is vastly different. For the first um, book, where did you go looking? Yeah, that's largely a consequence of of, of time and budget. Um, the, you know, the first book, we we got a, a perfectly, you know, reasonably generous contract for our first book, and so we had the budget to basically go to to our home base in New York and then Paris and London, because um, we thought, okay, let's go to the sort of main homes of fashion and of dandies, and you know, we we kind of know where to find these people already. Uh, and that was the first book came when the first book came out in 2013, uh, Instagram was like barely a thing. Um, so it was really a kind of thing where we would meet someone and they'd say, Oh, you should, well, we, first of all, let me say we had a list of certain people who we were like, okay, we really want to get them in this book. It's people like Gaitalese, uh, who we did get and people like Tom Wolf, who we didn't get. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who, who weren't available for, 
for whatever reason, or who just were, who weren't interested in being a part of it. We didn't get John Waters. We didn't get Brian Ferry. Like there were some famous people who we were hoping to get, um, but they couldn't do it for one reason or another. Uh, so in the first book, when we set out to meet people and find people, it was a lot of word of mouth stuff. It was like, oh, um, you know, you're going to Paris next. Oh, you have to meet this person, or um, you know, there's this guy who go, who also goes to my tailor who you'd love. So it was, we had to really go out and look for people. And a lot of that was based on them, on, on subjects guiding us toward other subjects. And there were some things with people like, for example, Hamish Bowles, the editor of Vogue, um, we really wanted him in the book and we didn't have any kind of direct contact to him. And then after we photographed and interviewed the artist, Peter McGuff, he said, I'll talk to Hamish because I, I, he should be in this book too. And so that's how we got, he was the last interview we did. And he was one of the best people to have in the book. He's amazing. The second book, uh, well, so uh, I'll say the first, so the first book, yeah, was New York, Paris, London, the big capitals of fashion uh, in, in the Atlantic. Uh, and we, we really wanted to do more because we knew that there were people all over the world who were interested in this. Um, but we just didn't have the time or the money to go to other places. Um, and we had a list of places we wanted to go. and then. The first book did so well. It did really, I mean, we were sort of blown away by how popular it was. Um, and I like to think that it was both that we were putting something out that people were hungry for, but also that the first book spurred on more interest in the topic. And so um, there was clamoring for a second book. And the main thing people wanted was they wanted people from other parts of the world, which is what we had originally hoped for. So, um, when the time came to do the second book, we had a bigger travel budget and we had a little bit more time and we had to pick some places where we could go. We didn't have all the time or all the money in the world. So we, so we had to sort of decide where are places we can go and photograph multiple people in one place um, without, you know, having to, it, we, we weren't going to fly to, you know, Mongolia because we knew there was one guy there. We just couldn't afford to do that, you know? Not that we do know if there's one guy there. I'm sure there is. Though. There's, probably there's, two. There's, there's probably two. <laughs> there are dandies everywhere. I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. There are dandies everywhere. Um, but we decided we, we needed to, we wanted to do, to North America and Europe, we wanted to add at least two more continents. Uh, so we needed to kind of decide how to do that. And the, the, the obvious uh, choices for us were Africa and, and, and Asia. And then within that, we decided in Africa, um, we would, we thought we had a list of either Congo, Nigeria, uh, Ghana, and South Africa, knowing that these are all places where there, there were fashion scenes and people who we knew who were very dressy or had interesting style. And we ended up settling on South Africa, um, partly because there were also some people who could travel there to meet us um, who were from other places like Namibia. Um, so we did South Africa, which was amazing. And then in Asia, we decided uh, on Japan and specifically Tokyo, just because that's sort of the obvious fashion uh, mecca for, especially for people who with um, really kind of like highly developed styles. Um, so yeah, we chose those two places. And then in addition to that, we focused on other parts of Europe um, outside of, of the UK and France. Um, so we got to, and we partly sort of cheated there by going to Kitty Womo and the menswear trade shows and stuff because there were lots of people who traveled from other places to, to be in one place. And we got to photograph them there. So in the second book, we had people from 
Sweden and Germany and Italy and Spain and all sorts of other places. Um, yeah, but we we'd want. I mean, we had we wanted to go to Argentina and uh, I really wanted to go to Haiti. I had a sort of feeling that there'd be Haitian dandies because there used to be, but um, maybe not so much now. Cuba, we wanted. To, we really wanted to go to Cuba because you know we know that there are guys in white linen suits there smoking cigars. Um, uh, Eastern Europe, we didn't get to do. We really wanted to, but so yeah, we had a, a big list. We knew there were people in Australia. We knew there were people, um, you know, all over. But so the the second book is less focused on our typical New York, Paris, London thing. And even even in that, I think in the people that we did photograph in in, in New York, for example, were actually sort of more outsider than the people in the first book. Um, they tended to be people who who you wouldn't sort of typically run into at a fashion event or something. We found people who lived in, in the Bronx and stuff, you know. I find that just looking at the content list of the two books, in book one, there's a lot of people I have heard of, mm. but book two, hardly any. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's, I mean, that's probably a just a, a matter of being a, a European or, or a Westerner or something. It's, it's, uh, I think quite a few of the Japanese people in the book are, are, are well known in Japan in certain circles. Um, uh, but they wouldn't be as famous as someone like Gay Talese, maybe. Well, um, I could, Shimaji san, who's one of the, the great Japanese dandies that we have in the book who collects scotch and cigars. Uh, and it, he used to be the editor of Japanese Playboy, and he's a pretty famous Japanese journalist. Um, he's yeah. hilarious. He's a really, really funny, fantastic. Uh, sort of playboy of a guy. Uh, so, yeah. So I think we we wanted to kind of expand our readers' view of the world of dandyism and, and to see what it could, all that it could encompass. I think that's uh, an admirable point because uh, I mean, reading about people you already knew about might not be as rewarding as finding right. a whole batch of new people. Uh, was there ever any talk of making a book three? There was, in fact, right before the um, right before the, the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we had signed up to do a third book, and uh, the idea was that this time we were going to do a book about women. Um, the, the, the thought being, because at first we sort of thought, okay, well, there's so many books about women's clothing, um, but then after we did these two books, we realized, okay, well, maybe we can we can use our approach to interviewing various specifically eccentric kind of women, uh, women with eccentric style. And we had a big list of people in various places and we were ready to go. And then we all know what happened. So we haven't really had a chance to do that. And it's been two, you know, two years now, more than two years since we began thinking about that project. And we never really got much farther than, than Rose photographing a few people in New York and, and me doing a couple interviews. Um, so I don't know what the future of that is, um, or if it's something that she and I are particularly keen on going back to, because we're both moved on to the So we have fighter jets now. There's an Air Force base nearby. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it strikes me when you're talking about dandies that there must be a fine line between the authentic dandy the sort of authentic eccentric who mm. does things because he has to. And then the more contrived dandy that dresses up because it yeah. seems like 
a thing to do. Yeah, in fact, that sort of goes back. So that goes back to something I sort of started kind of hinting at is that when the first book came out, Instagram was like a brand new thing. When the second book came out, um, Instagram was huge. It had completely blown up. Um, and there were tons of people who were, you know, hashtag menswear people. And they had bought the first book and Rose had a huge following. And so when word got out that we were working on a second book, we were, this time, we were deluged with people who were saying, <laughs> oh, you know, if you happen to be in, you know, Prague, here I am, would you like to photograph me? And of course, you know, we're, we were less likely to photograph anyone who, who asked us, <laughs> you know, outright like that. That immediately kind of raised our suspicions. Um, so suddenly we're living in this world of social media promotion where like being just being someone who dresses up can actually end up being a kind of lucrative career for someone. Uh, I mean, I don't know how creatively fulfilling it is as a career, but we, we suddenly we were meeting plenty of people who all they did was dress up for Instagram. And, and it was like, that was what they did. And among those people, there were some people who were genuine, who were genuinely interested in, in their, in their clothing. And then there were other people who were like, are they going to be doing this in two years? I don't know. You know, is this just, a kind of are they just into like the menswear craze that's happening uh so we had to be kind of careful about that and find out more about the people we went to photograph and interview um because we didn't want it to just be like a book full of instagram influencers you know we wanted them to have uh a unique perspective on, on what they were doing we wanted them to have some kind of reasons behind what they were doing other than just oh i want more followers uh we wanted it to be that they weren't just selling, selling a product. Uh, so for the second book, it was a lot of us kind of saying thanks, but no thanks to people. Whereas the first book was us kind of hungrily trying to find more and more people. Uh, <laughs> luckily, I mean, but there were, there were people who didn't make it into the first book who we were able to get for the second book. Um, we had, we had some kind of not hard and fast, but s we had a few kind of loose guidelines. Like um, we only put people who were, tailors or designers or, or working in the fashion industry in the book if they were if they were people who had like a very exceptional career or story um that we thought kind of merited them being included and and if we really did think they were dandies themselves like edward sexton fall into that category guy um, hills guy hills yeah um so we did we tried to avoid having too many people who worked in fashion in the book because that's another thing we wanted to highlight that like these are doctors and lawyers and writers and musicians and all kinds of, of people they're not all they're not doing this because it's their job um, yeah so so the the advent of instagram made the second books uh casting very very different and it, we, we had to sort of train ourselves to to figure out and and i'll admit there are some of the people who are in who are in the second book who aren't really into you know suits and ties anymore or or whatever it might be you know they might there are a couple of young guys who are now have now moved on to streetwear or something um which is okay but uh you know it's it, it was what we were trying to kind of we wanted people who were like this was really their life hmm. it's a it's a tricky prospect i mean i can leafing through the book i can tell probably who you mean and i can imagine the months before they were in skinny jeans um, I mean, especially with the younger guys, it's hard. It's it's impossible to tell if you know if you're interviewing someone who's like 20 years old. My style's changed a lot since I was 20 years old. I, I've always been into suits and dressing up and all that, but uh, within that, it's changed a lot. So 
I, I certainly don't begrudge anyone who decided to evolve in a different direction. Uh, it's just mm. it, it, you can you never do know because um, uh, usually with older people, there's some indication of you can see how they've evolved. But with younger people, it could, they could go anywhere. You know. <laughs> They could, they could become nudists. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, around 2010, though, the menswear scene, the forums, etc., was kind of pretty specific, um, mm. the stuff people were into. And I think it's fair to say that yeah. sort of pretty much everyone was into the same sort of stuff. Mm. But since then, it has changed and evolved. And uh, I suppose... Yeah. It's interesting because I think... In in 2010 and all that, I think the, the menswear online was um, quite aesthetically conservative and, and often very people were very into rules and 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 I think part of it was people were enthusiastic they were discovering older rules about dressing um, that they were sort of rediscovering things that had been kind of forgotten and so people were excited about that so they, they tended to be kind of doctrinaire as as like new converts to things often are um so you'd get a lot of forums which are just people posting photographs of other people and sort of saying oh look you know his waistcoat's too short look at how sloppy the shoulders on his jacket are and it, it which doesn't particularly interest me but it seemed to entertain a lot of people online um our book had very mixed responses from a lot of people who considered themselves you know menswear aficionados um definitely some of it was uh i think um uh homophobic in nature there are definitely people who thought you know oh this is this is uh this, this is too gay to be you know uh, it, 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 it even if they didn't come out and say it i feel like there definitely was um there were some comments we got which felt like they were saying oh these are these fl these flamboyant dandies are not you know masculine menswear there's, there's quite a conservative streak i think in the traditional menswear world that there's like a, that i think feeds feeds pretty easily into um old-fashioned ideas about how men should act and behave and, and live um unfortunately i think that it, it can be quite constraining um but then we also had other people who said oh this is great i never you know, I've always been into this particular style and, and seeing these, these men have made me think entirely differently about, you know, how I feel about runway fashion or, um, the men's style guys for a long time, I think were quite, I think they were often, they would say like the whole, this is style, not fashion thing became a kind of dogma for a while that like they had a kind of disdain for, for fashion because it changed. Um, whereas they thought, well, you know, style is something that's that's eternal and um it's it's a kind of platonic thing that that there's a right way and a wrong way to do it uh whereas fashion is is mere whim uh, so i think they, they kind of denigrated fashion in that way which i again i think i i read slightly sort of homophobic undertones in that being like fashion is something for for gays and women and style is something that real men are into uh it could be just me uh, analyzing it too too much, but uh, I definitely got that vibe. And we did we did hear from some people who said um, that, like someone who owned a shop said that a, one of the clients a client of theirs returned the book because their friends were making fun of them for having it on their coffee table. And I was like, wow. well, that's <laughs> that's shocking to me. But you know, 
It, it does sound plausible, though, um, that people would criticise like that because it strikes me at the time you had the people coming up who were looking for guidance mm. and then you had the gatekeepers who knew the, all the style rules and then you clearly had a small segment of people that were totally comfortable with themselves and just wanted to do their own thing. Yeah, and I think in I think I talk about it a little bit in the introduction to the second book um, is I think that there's there's definitely a place for all these things in in the world of menswear. Like there are people who are menswear bloggers whose whole idea is oh let me teach you these these sort of classic rules of, of classic menswear. Um, and I think it's great that those people are out there so that we still know what these that rules are and we can learn about, you know, uh, how to wear white tie, you know, in the traditional proper way. I'm, I'm glad that those people exist who, who are keeping that knowledge alive and, you know, <laughs> teaching it to people. Um, there are also people who have no interest in that at all and who you know, want to dress flamboyantly in their club kids. And they might be looked upon as some of the more traditional by some of the more traditional people as, as kind of, uh, you know, unserious or something. Um, because they're not wearing clothes that they could they're not wearing clothes meant for everyday life or or something like that or they're 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 trying to draw too much attention to themselves they're 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 ego egoists or something like that um but i i definitely think there's place for all these kind of things within this larger umbrella of, of what rose and i call dandyism but but within the world of menswear uh in total and i think it's i think especially with the sort of um at the, at the same time, there's also been a second wider, wider democratic interest in men's fashion in general. And you've got a lot of kind of lower end um, or medium range, like custom suit companies now. So younger guys with less money can get custom suits and they're, they're getting interested in that kind of stuff. So I think at the same time, more people are getting involved in this. And that means more diversity of opinions and styles, uh, which can lead to uh, conflicts and also disagreements, um, but you know, I think it's it's generally a more interesting thing. You know. And of course, now we have the internet, which uh, allows us to fully express all our opinions and uh, argue with people online and explain how wrong they are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, right. Which, which is, I mean, I don't, I, I don't re spend time on menswear forums because I just don't feel like I don't have the time and the energy to do that. Besides, I wrote two books, so I already win. Um, <laughs> I, I have a degree of authority just just by that that I can I can wave around like a you know like some sort of cudgel. But um, uh, I mean, I, I there was there was a, a few things that happened in recent years, like uh, the that that white power that white power rally in Charlottesville. I remember a lot of people were sort of shocked that they were seeing a lot of these Nazis dressed like you know like they'd come from suit supply or something. They'd had you know, very neat clothes on and they were wearing, you know, pressed khakis and, and blue blazers. And, and it was sort of, look at how, you know, these aren't just a bunch of, you know, rednecks with, with giant beards and camouflage anymore. Um, and I think that was kind of, that shocked people who, who in a way that it didn't shock me because I'd, I'd already seen that, but this world of, of, menswear and dressing and dandyism or whatever it is, it encompasses all kinds of different things. Um, you know, it made perfect sense to me that there'd be conservative people who decided that they're going to dress ultra sharp, you know? Um, so I I'm, I, no, sorry, I shouldn't say conservative people. I should say radically right wing people. Um, 
Yeah, I, I don't think that was implausible at all that they would be dressing better. Um, mm. I don't know if their mums buy their suits for them or <laughs> <laughs> their little blazers. I'm sure at this point they have to take up a collection, I think. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. It was a shame for Fred Perry, though, that they got uh, dragged down into it. Yeah, that was – I mean, so my my background in in my personal style is that I used to be a punk rocker, and, and uh, so I was always interested in subcultures and – punks and skinheads and mods and all that kind of stuff so so i loved i coveted fred perry's when i was a teenager i I thought they were just the coolest thing and i would you know save up my money to buy a fred perry um and so when the proud boys started wearing that it was really frustrating um and i i think fred perry responded reasonably well to it they they, i think they stopped selling that particular style in the u.s so it had to be custom ordered um and it kind of, I think it eventually worked because I don't think the Proud Boys really wear that anymore. They wear like yellow hats or something now. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, that sounds a lot more dandy, though. It's and it's look, but this is a, this is yeah, this is not a, a um, I mean, this is a problem that Fred Perry has had to deal with for most of its existence, just because people associate skinheads with fascism and lots of skinheads wear Fred Perrys. So the guilt by association there has always has been there for them. They've surfed this wave before. Um, just probably never in America uh, to this extent. Yeah. Um, sort of thinking back to the two books, who would you say was the, the most dandy of them all? <laughs> I mean, that's hard to say because, again, there's so many different sort of breeds of dandy in these books. Um, I I think – I definitely think Hamish Bowles from Vogue was one of the people who I met in the first book who I thought, well, this guy's like – the real deal dandy in terms of, even though he does work in the world of fashion, but because he lives this very elegant uh, jet set lifestyle as someone who travels around and he's now the, the editor in chief of, of world of interiors. Uh, and he's someone who has an encyclopedic knowledge of not just design, but art, um, decorative arts, architecture, uh, ballet. He's a you know a big patron of the ballet. Uh, so he's someone who I thought, well, this is like um, Cecil Beaton or you know one of these kind of early twentieth century English dandies uh, who is is also an aesthete, um, who's very highly intelligent and very urbane and well traveled, um, but also you know incredibly stylish. So he was someone who that was definitely. Um, I thought of him as like, oh, this is this is the real deal, genuine dandy. Uh, Massimiliano uh, Mocchia de Cogiola, who's the guy who's on the first the cover of our first book, he's one of the first people we met who were like, oh, this guy's really a dandy because he's doing this when no one is looking. Really, he's been he's been dressing that way since he was a teenager and living this sort of radically eccentric uh, bohemian lifestyle in Paris in this apartment filled with art, um, throwing these incredible, uh, costume parties. Uh, so he seemed like someone who was a real, uh, genuine dandy for its own sake and pleasure, uh, not, uh, not as a career. Uh, and in the second book, I think I'd say Shimaji, who I mentioned early, earlier in, in Japan, uh, who was a former editor of Playboy. He's, he's someone who I would consider, uh, like a real, serious dandy because again it's just it's just how he lives and he's been doing it for such a long time and it's not 
there's no artifice there. This is really the, who the guy is. He really sits in this tiny Tokyo apartment surrounded by slippers and fountain pens and, and cigar wrappers, uh, you know, drinking scotch and living his best life. Um, so those are, those are three that are like sort of immediately stand out. Um, a, a lot of the guys in South Africa um, were kind of interesting because uh, there was a definition of, of mods. One of the old definitions of mods back in the 60s was clean living under difficult circumstances. Uh, and I thought that applied a lot to the guys in South Africa who were, um, none of them were, were sort of incredibly poor people or something like they, they weren't, you know, living in, in hovels or something, but they were young black South Africans who were creating their own style in a, in a place and that, that didn't necessarily make it easy for them. And I thought that was kind of a true spiritual dandyism, this idea of like, well, you know, I can't just, I can't just walk down to the shops and pull out my wallet and buy whatever I want off a mannequin. I have to use some ingenuity to create my own style. Um, and that's, we saw a lot of that. And we've seen, we've seen that all over the world, frankly, especially almost everyone we interviewed, they say they got their start, you know, buying things from thrift shops and all that. Um, because that's what teenagers can afford. Uh, but that kind of thing, I think is the sort of spiritual core of dandies and this kind of thing where I've, I've got to make this happen, even if, even if it's going to be hard to do. Hmm. I noticed uh, about 20 pages before um, the Vogue uh, chap, Hamish, uh, Nick Wooster is featured. Mm -hmm. Of course, Nick Wooster, friend of the pod. Um, he was very much at the, focal point of the explosion of menswear around yeah. 2010 yeah he was like the face of he was at least he was the american face of of that whole explosion that kind of hashtag menswear world he was the instagram icon uh and interviewing him was interesting because my, my questions for him were, were really just like how did this happen for someone who is a who is a, a buyer for department stores to suddenly become this face this celebrity online and he was slightly baffled but quite pleased um, you know, and he's, and he's also an interesting person too, because he's not, you know, we put him in the book, even though he's, he's got a very wide range of influences and styles that he, that he puts into. There's plenty of times where you see him wearing, you know, a sweater and camo pants and sneakers, uh, which is not what I would typically call a dandy look. Uh, but we thought it was important to have him in that first book because he'd become such an icon of, of the world of menswear. I think his story does fuel a lot of the, the hopes and dreams of people hoping to be discovered the way he stepped yeah. out of the hotel back in 2010 was taken a photo of it was uploaded and boof, Nick Wooster menswear yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. And so, and suddenly, and I think that's, you know, you can kind of trace back to that and a few other things like the sartorialist um, doing, making street style, such a huge thing or, or uh, Tommy Tan from GQ and suddenly you had all these people who were like, oh, I need to go to Pitiwomo and get photographed in my, in my outfits, which is very easy to make fun of. And I think I probably do make fun of it a little bit in the book um, because it's, it's a, it's a, it's see, it can seem like such a pointless aspiration. But then when you meet, for example, the guys from South Africa and you realize like, oh, for them, this is a huge deal that they get, they're going to, to, they're going to Florence and they might get photographed and put in international GQ. Like, that's a big deal for them. The, the, that's recognition beyond the confines of Johannesburg or, or South Africa or the continent. Um, 
so so it was a i think like this explosion of like online social media menswear attention as kind of as easy as it is to sort of mock the self you know promotion of it all um and the lust for for more followers and all that kind of stuff which i think mm -hmm. everyone you know it's a temptation to anyone uh, there, there are people who genuinely, I think, are, are talented and interesting people who are getting recognition they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, yeah. I, I'm and there's, totally there's probably still people who are who are you know toiling in obscurity and who are doing great things as well. I, I'm totally in two minds about the entire pity thing. Mm. Uh, on the one hand, I'd love to go there just the once, just to see what yeah. it's all about. <laughs> I mean, on the other so, hand, yeah, it's Sorry. such a such a hot pot of narcissism and mm. peacockry that it's just oh yeah. please no <laughs> i mean it's it's so funny because you know i we've been there twice and it's i've been to i've been to pity Womo twice and i've been to a star trek convention once and the similarities <laughs> are striking i mean really it is it's like a lot of people who have one very specific common interest all getting together so it is like a big family reunion there's lots of fun and there's different kind of cliques and people it's nice to run into people who you've only met online before. Uh, you know, you get to go and look at a lot of nice new clothing, all that kind of stuff. But also, you know, you do see people conspicuously smoking cigarettes and drinking cappuccino, you know, trying to look nonchalant for the photographers and all that kind of stuff. And it's, and that's kind of funny. It's a, it's a sort of sport, you know, or it's, it is like nature watching, um, to watch, to watch the peacocks, you know, uh, do you think the interest in it has waned a little now, uh, disregarding the effects of pandemics and so forth? But has it been sort of going a bit off? Yes, I think that um, definitely the interest in like pure tailored menswear and and in uh, kind of pure classic style has, I think, um, diluted a little bit, and and there's more interest now in a wider variety of styles among young guys. Um, I think that the interest in clothing has remained for, for men, which wasn't, uh, I think that a few things in the past decade or two decades, I guess, have, have made it okay for men to care about clothing again. Part of it was this men's wear style. I think part of it is um, the mainstreaming of gay culture and this idea that it's not, you know, there's no shame in, in dressing up and it's there's no shame in, in just as there's no shame in being gay, there's no shame in, in being a dressy man. Uh, so I think that that interest in clothing, I think, is kind of here to stay for for a larger proportion of the population than that was the case 20 years ago, of the male population. That is, um, I also think, but I, I do think that the the kind of like fascination the, that that Pitiwomo fascination is has waned a little bit as kind of natural ebb and flow of things. Um, I do think, um, having said that, I think, I, I know you said disregarding the pandemic, but I think the, the pandemic has actually had a few unexpected effects on all this kind of stuff. On the one hand, everyone said, oh yeah, everyone's going to be just wearing sweatpants from now on because they're not leaving their house, they're not going to the office, that kind of thing. The fact is people weren't particularly dressing up to go to the office anyway, anymore. That's not why people dress up these days. Um, and what I've seen now is I've definitely seen people who might have been more timid in the past uh, are being a bit more maybe flamboyant or maybe adventurous in their style. I'm seeing a lot, a lot of my clients or, or other people's clients, 
there's people in, on the street. Teenagers seem a lot more stylish than they did when I was when I was in school. Um, I don't know why that is, but I mean, when I see teenagers now, you guys look so much cooler than my friends and I did back then. Like they seem to really have their stuff together. Um, I think that's probably also partly an effect of the internet uh, and just the idea that you have kind of multi multi trends at once, and it's not just one one particular style dictated by the glossy magazines anymore uh, and by the designers from above. There's been a demo, demo, democratization of style. And with that, there's been a kind of a great, um, I think, flourishing of, of diverse styles. Um, some of which are great and some of which are silly in my opinion, but you know, I'm, I'm glad that it's, I, I do think that there, and I think, well, I think the effect of the pandemic and all that is that people are being a little bit more adventurous, and risk-taking with their lives in all kinds of ways, in the sense that, you know, they're going out and doing, well, not, not necessarily going out, but they're doing things that they might, they might not have in the past, you know, they're, whether it's taking up a new hobby or changing their careers or getting out of a relationship that wasn't working, that they might've, that might've not happened had it not been for this massive world-changing mm. event. I think uh, a smaller version of that is a lot of people are getting more adventurous in, in their clothing. Mm. I see a, a fair amount of, uh, it seems that the kids these days or teenagers, young people seem to have more money than certainly I had when I was young. And also, yeah. as you mentioned with the internet, the fashion sort of, it blasts all around the world at the same time. Yeah. Where I grew up in the extreme North of Norway, we were certainly a year behind mm. Oslo, which might've been a year after London. Right. So unless you were traveling and sort of got yeah. good stuff way before everyone else when no one would understand how cool it was until a year yeah. after. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, I mean, kids are signing up to be drawn in lotteries, to be allowed to buy the new sneakers or whatever, right. buying and reselling all these high-end brands. And they just seem totally clued in. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I definitely, I, I definitely appreciate what you say there. Even growing up in New York, um, when I was younger, my when I was a teenager, my interest wasn't pr primarily in fashion. It was in subcultures, like I mentioned earlier. So, so for me, it was like coveting very kind of specific things, like Dr. Martin boots or Fred Perry's or you know, I don't know, Ben Sherman sweaters or something. Hmm. Um, but even then, I, you know, I had to like if I wanted something special, I had to save up for it. And the way I learned about clothes, just like the way I learned about music, was a very uh, it was a very kind of long-term process. I, I couldn't just look up on the internet easily. The, the way I used to find out about bands was I would go to a show and I'd look at someone's leather jacket and I'd say, oh, look, they like the Dead Kennedys. Maybe I'd like these other bands that are on their jacket. And then I'd, <laughs> I'd go to the record store and listen to the record. And if I liked it, I'd buy the record. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, you've got an algorithm to tell you that. Uh, and so maybe, I mean, it, there might be a kind of similar thing happening with style. I feel like, in fact, Rose and I have talked about this. I've talked about this with a lot of other people. That one of the effects of the internet might be that people—it's—it's it's easier for people to kind of instantly grab onto a style, and it's easier for people to kind of instantly experiment and cast off or keep what they like. Uh, whereas in the past, developing a style was a much more gradual kind of thing, um, and there, it wasn't the kind of thing where I could look up online, you know, oh you know, what, what's the, the pre precise, perfect way that a mod would dress, you know, uh, 
whereas you know, I had I had like old books that I'd had to find and stuff about about mods and what they wore, um, or watch old movies or something. I was talking to Matthias Lersel in Germany a few weeks back about subcultures, and I think we postulated that subcultures weren't there to such an extent these days. Yeah, definitely not. So, I, uh, yeah. would you be wanting to dress up as a mod or? A rude boy or whatever right they're not really around yeah i definitely think that i mean i think subcultures are are and should be primarily a young person's game um i find it weird when i meet someone who's like a you know 55 year old punk um <laughs> like I, I i also feel like I, you know you can kind of you can you can often meet people and kind of tell quite off the bat oh you know you look like you might have been into you know this scene or something um, or after a little bit of conversation, you might find that out about them. Uh, but it, it's it's definitely I think subcultures are are great when it's young people doing them. Um, but of course, even then, it was it's it was kind of silly for me as a as a teenager in the in the nineties and uh, to be dressing as a like a mod from the sixties. Like it's that's that was kind of in New York of all places. That was that was that was already a kind of weird revivalist thing to be doing. I wasn't like creating my own subculture. But I, when I was a kid, you know, there were goths and ravers and, you know, hardcore kids and skaters and all this kind of stuff. And now I think definitely, be, and I, it's got to be because of the internet, I can't imagine what else it would be. There isn't that kind of tribalism that I see among teenagers these days in terms of, of like youth subculture. Because um, I remember being very like, you know, oh, I, we don't hang out with ravers, you know, or we don't hang out with the goths. Um, mm. And I think there's, there's pros and cons to that kind of youth tribalism. It does give you a kind of sense of belonging and having a click and all that, which is both good and bad. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't see young, you know, rude boys walking around or uh, I, I don't, I couldn't even imagine what, what was the last subculture uh, that, that popped up. I don't really know. The only emo, I, emo perhaps. I mean, emo was, was one. Uh, but was that really, I, was that a subculture or was it, just, just kind of a, I guess a sub. If we're defining a youth subculture as like a fashion and music kind of scene, identifiable, discreetly identifiable scene focused around a particular kind of music and fashion, then yeah, I guess it's probably emos. Emo. Yeah. I think this is where it's sort of you had grunge and you had emo, but this is where it sort of comes. The subcultures turn into cosplay because what mm. I see now most of all are teenagers doing this sort of Japanese. Mm anime type thing right yeah i don't even know if they have any music attached to it but i can it's very easy to recognize yeah. the styles yeah well it's interesting i mean like you know korean pop music is such a huge thing for teenagers all over the world now um which is just kind of that wasn't something i could have imagined or predicted but uh i don't and i don't think they have i think korean pop stars do have a very specific kind of style and image that they that they put out there they've got like particular kind of haircuts and stuff uh but I don't think the fans necessarily dress a particular way. You know, I don't think all of, all of Taylor Swift's fans don't dress a particular way. All of, mm. you know, uh, there isn't that kind of, whereas I remember when I was a teenager, like, yeah, Marilyn Manson fans dressed a certain way, you know, uh, Metallica fans dressed a certain way. Uh, Could this be down to sort of mainstream versus the outsiders where the outsiders will dress like their artists? Whereas if you're mainstream, then you just, regular. yeah, that's possible. I also think that, yeah, I mean, I definitely, that that's definitely true 
that was true back in the day. I think the, the whole idea of wanting to be part of a subculture was wanting to be outside the mainstream, but still have a kind of sense of belonging, um, whether that was, you know, whatever kind of music or fashion that happened to be. Uh, now, I, I'm sure that it's, um, I, I think that the, the internet has quite blurred the lines between what's mainstream and not. I mean, so much of the media I think that's being produced like pop pop culture media that's being produced is coming from the internet from you know people who've gone viral who are not you know it's it's not someone in a boardroom hasn't told them what to do or said like oh we think this marketing would work with the kids they've struck a chord somehow on their own and that's become its own thing mm. um, so i think that kind of leveling and and um less reliance on gatekeeping has made mainstream and uh, outsider a much a much less clear cut kind of thing. Um, at least that's how it seems from from my thirty eight year old perch. I don't know. Well, I'm even I older, I so I clearly have no <laughs> idea at all. <laughs> uh, all I know is that I don't see you know young punks walking around anymore. I don't see uh, you know young goths on the street very much. I think that's all for the best. Uh, some subcultures have their time, and then we have mm. to move on. And uh, yeah, I think that's okay. I would like. I mean, I'd love to see interesting new subcultures. I mean, you know, rather than uh, I'd, I'd like to see more youth youth subcultures based around fashion and music, and and maybe less uh, around radical politics. <laughs> 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 yeah. That's that kind of worries me more when people are fighting pitched battles in the streets. Uh, I think maybe some of their energy would be better directed towards picking out a cool outfit. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter Gomology, and it's easy. And, uh, yeah, let's continue on. I wanted to ask you about... um, there are a number of sort of style icons from the past that keep popping up. Mm. Um, I'm thinking Steve McQueen, the Duke of Windsor, mm-hmm. etc. cetera. Uh, many of these are totally sort of worshipped and endless old photos of them will be dragged out because Steve McQueen looks so good in his white T-shirt and so forth and Duke of Windsor in his his outfits. Uh, I read a blog post by Tony Sylvester, mm-hmm. incidentally, also in the second, uh, first dandy book. Yeah. Uh, also a, a true punk rocker as well. Interesting guy. Interesting guy. I'm yeah, trying to get right. in touch with him. Um, I'll, put, I'll put you in touch with him. And he wrote a blog post last week, I think, about the Duke of Windsor and how everyone thinks that he wore all these sort of pretty monochrome, uh, boring suits, Mm. but very stylish, very sharp. But as it turns out, if you see the colour photos, he was um, not very coordinated at all. Right, yeah. So I'm wondering, and I think the Duke of Windsor wasn't a nice guy either. Uh, Steve McQueen, definitely not a nice guy. yeah. Is it okay to sort of keep uh, making icons of these guys? I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, I think I think yes and no. Um, again, I mean, we're we're in a cultural moment right now where people are talking about you know uh, separating the art from the artist and and when that's okay or whether it's okay. And you know, uh, the Duke of Windsor was a 
a sympathizer of, of Hitler's or, or at least, you know, didn't, didn't look on him unfavorably and was kind of a nasty piece of work. Um, yeah, Steve McQueen was, was sort of notoriously kind of a jerk. Um, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, and I think it's okay to admire how these people dress, but I, I, I also think that, you know, it, it's good to know everything there is about these people as well. I, I, I don't think it's good to just take a picture and say, oh, this person's my icon. Um, Brian Ferry is one of my favorite style icons of all time. I love, I, and I love Roxy Music, and I love his solo solo albums, and I love the way he dresses too. But like his his charity is is keeping fox hunting legal, which is <laughs> oh, it's wow, it's I mean apparently he feels very passionate about it, and that's fine. But it, that to me that doesn't that makes him a slightly less appealing. It doesn't, it doesn't make him a role model to me, whereas the way he dresses does, you know. Um, you know that's fine if that's what he wants to agitate for, but it's it doesn't it doesn't make me, you know, it certainly doesn't make me want to go out and promote fox hunting or something like that. Um, so that's I, and I do think that there are kind of like I know we talked a little bit earlier about about um, sort of the alt right and their their kind of menswear presence, which is which has definitely been true. I think. I know that there were a lot of people I know who are more involved in the world of online forums and stuff who after the kind of recent divisiveness that's happened politically across the world, um, they were quite surprised to find out what various people on the forums politics were because that it's something that hadn't come out, come up in, in the past and they had very profound disagreements about it. And, you know, there was acrimony and name calling, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think uh, with, with these style icons, I think it's it's perfectly okay to admire their their clothing and all that. Gabriel D'Annunzio, the, the Italian poet and dandy, was one of Mussolini's great inspirations politically. Um, but it's definitely worth a look at his closet, and it's interesting to read biographies about him. Uh, he's a fascinating guy, uh, but you know he he had some pretty uh, vicious ideas about how the world should be run. Right. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that I, de I think you can separate the the clothing from the from the man. Uh, I, I don't think that's a problem, but I also I think it's a, I think people should know about who these people are, what they, how they live, and you know. I have no absolute, absolutely no interest at all in soccer, but I did notice that David Beckham, who is a generally regarded as something of a hot dude and style icon, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, had been paid to uh, promote the football championships in Qatar recently, mm. which did seem like a pretty poor move. Right, right. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's interesting who gets, who gets blamed for it and who doesn't. You know, there's a lot of, I think, I mean, maybe it was always the case, but I think especially now in the world of social media and stuff, there's a lot of attention paid to uh, Sort of to, to symbolic things like, uh, like a like a spokesperson or like someone's someone's name being attached to uh, a building or um, you know or a statue to someone being you know existing in the public square. Um, there's a lot of attention paid to symbols and, and visual representation and things like that. Um, and there's a debate to be had on how, um, you know on the, the merits and benefits of, of paying more paying attention to that 
versus finding other ways to address problems. I mean, I don't know if, you know, I, I don't, whether David Beckham promotes Qatar or not, it, you know, it's probably good that people are, it, it's probably good that it raises awareness about, you know, whatever issues are at play, actually, that people did get upset about it. Um, mm. But it's also not, I mean, I don't know, they're, they're probably all, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm qualified to talk too much about that. Um, but it's an interesting question. I'll just sort of summarize that I was disappointed in him, although yeah. I don't care about him, but uh, there you go. Um, I wanted to take a quick swerve into your sort of main business, uh, mm -hmm. because I noticed um, yesterday that you posted a photo of a um, sanatorium suit. Right. Now, I, I don't know if it's the name the name of it, sanatorium. I used to drive past a sanatorium when I was working in Denmark uh, yeah. in a very stressful job, job years ago. Uh, and I used to see that turn off to the sanatorium, and I thought, every time I drove past, I thought, "Oh, I'd love to just turn in there <laughs> and spend <laughs> spend a week or 17. Right. Um, can you tell me more about the idea there? Yeah, so I was um, I was living in Baltimore uh, for a couple of years while my wife was at nursing school there, and um, I wasn't. Baltimore is not the most exciting city in America. Uh, far from it. And I was not going out very much. I spent a lot of time at home, and I was just at home writing and working and trying. Isn't to that where the wire was uh, set? It's where the wire was, was set, and and the, it's the wire is a pretty accurate uh, picture of a lot of Baltimore. It's it's a very rough place and it's very segregated. And there's there's a lot of problems there. Um, so I didn't. Get, it's hard to. The other thing, it's just kind of hard to meet people in that city, um, especially if you're interested in fashion or or kind of. Um, I guess like arts and culture in general, it's not it's not a it's not a very social city in the same way that, that say New Orleans or New York is. Um, so I was staying at home a lot. I wanted a like a like a kind of casual suit that I could wear around the house or something. And um, I happened upon a photograph of a French uh, soldier from the First World War who'd been who was recovering from being gassed uh, at some. A place with you know with mountain air or something or whatever they prescribed people with with you know poison lungs back then, and uh, he was wearing this kind of belted jacket, this top stitch and had patch pockets, and it looked very cool. It was very soft construction, uh, and I was like, oh, that looks great. Um, I was like, I'd, I'd I'd like to make a suit that's got pockets big enough for for a penguin paperback, and uh, a shawl lapel and a, and a, a belt that I can you know, lounge around the house in. and, uh, and, and so what ended up emerging was something that was a, kind of like a cross between pajamas and a suit in some way. And I, had, I did a little monogram of the breast pocket, which is not something I typically do on the suit. Um, and I, I enjoyed it and I thought it was kind of a, a fun thing, but it wasn't something that, um, I thought anybody else was really going to want. Um, and the name, uh, so I looked into it because there's, there's sanitarium and sanatorium, oh. and I, for, I forget which is which. One of them is a place where people go to dry out uh, from too much booze, uh, and one of the and I know in some places it just it's like a, a euphemism for a mental institution, um, but it's it's one of them specifically means a place where people go to to detox from from drinking drugs, and the other one is a place where people go who are. I have tuberculosis, or that's what it used to be. It used to be a place where people with TB would go. 
my grandfather went to a, a sanitarium or sanatorium in New Mexico back in 1920 or something when he had uh, tuberculosis. So um, this idea of this convalescent robe made me think, okay, well, this is like the kind of thing that you would, you know, maybe sit, sit in a sit in a reclining chair reading the newspaper and drinking tea while you're, you know, healing your lungs with the mountain air or something or, or, or avoiding um, things that are bad for you and maybe <laughs> sitting, like relaxing and getting healthy or something at the same time. Uh, so I thought that was, it was me being kind of cheeky and I didn't, I didn't expect the name to really take off either. But then and I, I, I think I, one other person bought one while I was living in Baltimore. And then when the pandemic hit, suddenly, when the pandemic hit, suddenly, I mean, I, my business, like so many others, got hit really hard. All the weddings were canceled. Um, people were saving their money because they were nervous. People were not out for a custom suit, you know. Um, gradually, as people kind of started assessing things and living with it more and that kind of stuff, I started getting orders and I got quite a few orders for the sanitarium suits because people wanted these like belted things that they could wear around the house and still feel kind of chic. Um, so it became sort of surprisingly popular because of the unusual circumstances we were in. Um, I quite like it. I get, you get sort of strange looks if you wear it out on the street. Um, but I quite like to wear it when, uh, when I have guests over and stuff. Um, I think you can probably, I'm sure you could style it in such a way that it would maybe fall a little bit too much into the Hugh Hefner territory. Um, you know, ascot and, and pipe and slippers and all that. But um, it's uh, it's been popular and I, I, I really love it. It's also nice. Um, it's particularly nice on like holidays and stuff. You can just stuff yourself and then belt your suit and not have to worry about buttons. <laughs> it's, I love wearing it on, on like Christmas morning and sitting around and... Uh, lounging in it it's, it's the one i made was soft brushed flannel too so that was quite pleasant sounds almost like in pajamas it is it is definitely it's like it's borderline the inspirations i think are are that that um convalescent robe that i saw pajamas i have a, a vintage yves saint laurent's velvet uh smoking jacket from the 70s that's got completely unconstructed and that's and that's belted and that also was like a, a very big inspiration um so it's like smoking jacket pajamas uh like someone co compared it to a karate gi which i thought was also kind of accurate because it's a sort of double-breasted thing that ties in the front um so it's got a few of these different elements in it and uh i i enjoy making them and i'm, I'm pleased with how many people both both men and women and uh, have been uh enjoying them it sort of also tallies a bit with the kimono, which appears to have had a massive comeback yeah. in recent years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that's a very good point. Um, and I had, hadn't sort of thought of that, but yeah, definitely. There's, I think a lot of, um, especially vintage kind of sleepwear and loungewear has made a bit of a comeback. I know there's a, there's a vintage store near me that sort of specializes in, like they've got one of their main racks is all like vintage kimonos and, uh, slip dresses and you know robes and and old lingerie and stuff. Uh, and I think I think there's been a lot more interest in that. Even even the the men I know who are not sort of dandies are are people are giving them pajamas for Christmas and I'm like you know I I wouldn't have pegged them for being the pajama type. I would have assumed it was you know an old t-shirt and some boxer shorts. 
It's that Hugh Hefner style making a comeback. <laughs> it could be. I think it's also, I mean, it's also people spending more time at home and, you know, uh, wanting to feel slightly dressed, I guess. You, know? you feel you feel a bit nicer in a pair of pajamas than you do in a pair of sweats I, and uh, and like an old ratty t-shirt, probably. At least I do. I'm like, I can't speak for anyone else. I suppose that comes down to how much effort you're making in dressing for yourself. Mm. Or for the other people in your household or your partner or... Yeah, it's interesting because that's, I mean, that's one question we came back to so much when we were working on the books is, is you know, are you dressing for yourself or what are your other reasons? And I, a lot, almost everyone said, oh, you know, primarily for myself, it makes me happy. It brings me joy. Um, there were some people who had a sort of idea that they were on a kind of civilizing mission that like, oh, I'm trying to make, you know, I'm trying to encourage people to be more formal or elegant or trying to make the world look prettier or something like that, which is fine. It's a bit, it's a bit grandiose. Um, but then there also, uh, you know, I was really glad because there were some people who pointed out that like uh, Kamau Hostin, who's the last person in the second book. Um, and he's one of these people where Rose didn't get photographs of him in a lot of different outfits. And so the publisher had wanted to kind of, uh, it was like, Oh, we, we want to give him a short profile. And I said, I had one of the most interesting interviews with him. Please, please, please let me let me put the text I want in there. And they they went for it. And he talks about how for him style was because he was too shy to meet girls. So for him it was very much like he needed something that would get him out of his shell, and maybe people would talk to him or notice him because he was too shy to talk to them or do something else. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to dress. Um, a reason to dress. Uh, I also think, you know, now both social media and the fact that people are spending so much time at home during the pandemic uh, means that the lines between dressing for yourself and dressing for others is also kind of blurred because I, this is, I, I'm wearing, you know, a pink corduroy suit and a cricket jumper in, in my home. Uh, you're the only person I'm going to see this afternoon. Uh, so, but, but at the same time, you know, I take pictures of myself sometimes at home to show off suits and promote my business. Uh, and that goes out there. So people do see what I wear at home. And I think a lot of my clients I know, they, they dress up at home now more than they used to, because it feels like, I guess, I think for people who maybe people who don't have to go into the office anymore, this at least feels like, okay, I'm, I'm getting down to work or something. Yeah. I find uh, I dress up because my rack of clothes is making me a bit. Um, oh, I'm lost for words now, but it's giving me a bad conscience because I've got all these clothes, <laughs> and if I don't use them, yeah. why are they hanging there? So I have to put on something, and if yeah. I have put on something, then I might as well take a photo of it. But really, mm. sweatpants and a t-shirt would have been sufficient that day. Right. We had a, we, I mean, I had a sort of similar thing happen here. You know, we had a big hurricane this, this summer and followed immediately by a heat wave. And we'd evacuated for about a week and a half and there was no power. So there was no air conditioning in the apartment or anything while we were gone. Uh, so the apartment became incredibly humid and a lot of my winter wardrobe got mold. Because uh, we were, because we were gone for a week and a half and, and it was, you know, 
100 degrees Fahrenheit out with either incredible humidity and our apartment just became this like hot box kind of thing. And so all of these like thick wools and tweeds and stuff, it wasn't, it wasn't, thankfully, most of it wasn't irreparable. I had to throw away a couple pairs of shoes, but and like a hat or two, but um, most of it was the kind of thing where, you know, you brush it and take it to the cleaner and it was fine. Uh, but yeah, it, it was, and partly just living in New Orleans, I don't get a chance to wear my winter wardrobe very much. <laughs> so all the stuff that I had in New York and Baltimore stays in the closet. I don't, it doesn't go into the rotation as much as I'd like. Right. Um, yeah. I have mentioned a few times before um, this business you mentioned now about um, dressing for yourself or dressing for others. It was interesting to hear people who feel they have this sort of messiah complex where they have mm-hmm. to go out and change people's mind about clothes. I find that most people rarely notice what you're wearing mm. unless you're very very noticeable right yeah so unless you are dressing for your own pleasure yeah you're not really going to change people's minds yeah that's true i i will say i do think i mean one of the nice things about the books is that we did have a lot of people come up to us and say oh you know i was always this kind of dresser and this some like these people in here these specific people kind of encouraged me to try out these new things, which I feel like is kind of the best you could hope for is that maybe people's uh, horizons will be a little bit expanded about what, what they, what they like, what they can try, what they might be comfortable with or, or uncomfortable with. So that's, that's good. But um, that's sort of like, when I hear that, I feel like, Oh, that's, that's a very nice result of this book. And that might be a, a sort of, I think that's kind of the best you, you should, that's the best you should hope for from the uh, from promoting fashion or style really like the idea of going around being like oh everyone should dress more like me is a or you know oh the world's too casual now i'm gonna you know mm. stick it to the uh, man by uh, i'm gonna show them all how to dress you just have a little leaflet with your new rules for dressing right. and- <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that seems very very weird to me i mean and i i, I can sort of i admire the, the kind of confrontational nature of some people's style because I, I mean, I know for a fact that there are plenty of men in the book, especially the ones who are more flamboyant, especially a lot of the gay men who, you know, their style was a reaction to uh, prejudice. And um, I mean, even even I remember being a punk and all that kind of stuff and get, having, you know, people who, <clears throat> who didn't dress like me call me names on the street because of how I was dressed and stuff. It also so much of it depends on where you are when you know, in New York, it's funny because nobody, everyone kind of pretends they don't notice how you're dressed. You know, even if you're wearing a very outrageous flamboyant thing, everyone there, the idea is that you're, you're sort of too cool. You don't really notice the stuff that's happening. If you're a New Yorker, <laughs> the tourists will kind of surreptitiously take pictures of you on the on the train and stuff. But, you know, New Yorkers, it's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah there's, there's just a, there's a guy in a you know, hot pink suit, whatever. <laughs> Typical New York day. In Baltimore, Nobody dresses up. Everyone's just wearing sports jerseys all the time. And uh, the reactions I got there were some like, like down. In some cases, it's like I would wear a, a plain, like a polo shirt and a plain navy blue suit, and kids would stop me on the street and be like, "Oh my god, did you just get married?" And I'm like, "In in this, like that was the I was the most dressed up they'd ever seen." <laughs> you know, it really like it surprised people. And then I also had like you know outright hostility of people calling me faggot on the street and stuff. I'm like, that hasn't happened since I was a teenager. Um, it was just it was so weird to me that like that would happen in, in a metropolis in the Northeast of America. 
Then coming to New Orleans, it's sort of the opposite of those two things, where this is a city that has such a culture of costuming and uh, flamboyance and color. You know, like the buildings here are all painted these beautiful pastel colors and kind of stuff like that. I get nothing but compliments in the street here. I mean, every everywhere I go, it's people really appreciate the fact when when they see someone dressed up, they're really excited. They don't ask you, you know, where you're going or or. Well, sometimes they say like, "Oh man, where, where, where? Like, can I follow you? Where, what bar are you going to?" But they're, they're not. There's no kind of like, "What are you all dressed up for?" Kind of hostility. Um, it's it's very people here are very appreciative of it because it it adds. I think it's it's part of the vibrancy of the city. And you see a lot of people here who are not necessarily dandies or or people who dress up because for one, it's very hot and humid. But um, you see a lot of people with with very flamboyant individual personal styles here, which I'm very pleased about. Yeah. And and unlike New York, nobody pretends it isn't happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds so so wonderful. It makes yeah. me think that I mean, dressing up and expressing yourself like that is part of being human. Mm. And animals yeah. are flamboyant, yeah, by nature, by genetics, I suppose. Yeah, I often, you know, point out with that you when people list the sort of things that you need to survive, it's food, shelter, and clothing, right? Um, and I feel like most people pay a lot of attention to food and to shelter. They pay attention to their homes and, and their, what they eat. A much smaller percentage of the population pays, takes as much interest in, in how they dress. Um, and I think it's, you know, if you care about what kind of house you live in, if you care about what kind of food you eat, you should, you should, you should also probably care about what kind of clothes you wear. But, you know, yet I know, I mean, you just have to look at Silicon Valley and see, you know, billionaires who live in, incredible mansions with the latest technology and who eat, you know, who have chefs cooking the meals at home, uh, you know, five star, super healthy meals. And then they go out in, in a hoodie, uh, you know, hmm. it's like, ah, I, you know, you take so much interest in this one thing. And then you, this other part of your life, you make it as decision free as possible. Um, hmm. you know. that, is, that is strange. Yeah. I, I did uh, have to think about one subculture now that we have hmm. today among men of our age, uh, it might be on the wane a bit, but the denim guys. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I think that is very much a sort of Instagram, social media created subculture. Yeah. And it's, it's a subculture in, that's interesting because it's a very specific, it's, it's, that's very that's that's interesting because it's not like it's not something that would spring to mind when I think of like youth subcultures. It's not it's not focused around a particular genre of music or, um, but it's a, it's it's a particular interest. Uh, in it's a very specific and very intense interest in one particular thing. Um, and I guess you could say. I mean, you also have that. Is that is that any different from watch watch fanatics? I don't know because um, I wouldn't call watch people a subculture. That's more of a hobbyist thing. Yeah. But I think the, the denim guys, I mean, there's very strict rules, really. Mm. And there's also the rituals of how to right. wash your denim and so forth. Yeah. Sure. And, and they, they hunt in packs for the latest <laughs> Japanese boots. Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah. That's interesting. That's, yeah. I think it also, that is on the wane a little bit. Yeah. I think um, sneakers are having a big comeback, obviously, at the moment. I think that's become such huge business ever. The, the kind of, that's, you can say that's a subculture, sneakerheads, the people who you know, mm. are obsessed with the latest sneakers and who have, you know, a pair for, you know, they buy a new pair each week or whatever. Yeah. 
It strikes me that the men's fashion trends now, you've got sort of uh, Normcore, Gorp, and then you've got the sort of, it must be the, the, the absolute opposite of dandyism when you're wearing Arcturix and all these sort of clothes which not only lack colour but also mm. any sort of <laughs> styling, really. Yeah. Yeah, I always think it's funny when I see what, what's, what sort of the targeted ads on Instagram try to show me. Because I, I, I don't get the sense they know me that. I mean, sometimes there's something like, it'd be like a cool pair of Chelsea boots. I'm like, hey, that is the kind of thing I would wear. But I, I got sent something the other day that was like a knitwear company that everything was in tones of, of gray and beige and brown. There was not a single splash of color in there. And I, I just wondered what, what about my feed or algorithm or, or internet use is telling, telling, them this, this, telling this brand that I'm their consumer. Um, but yeah, there is a kind of... One of the things we asked, I asked everybody I interviewed for both the books, or nearly everybody, was if, if everybody else dressed like you, would you dress differently than you do now? You know, if, if everyone else had the same style as you. And there are some people who are like, oh, I would love it if everyone dressed up. You know, I, I, that, that would be such a wonderful, wouldn't it be a great world if we walked out and everyone was dressed up and looking snappy? And I, I can understand where that urge comes from. But there were also a lot of people who were like, oh, I, I'd have to immediately change my style. I'd have to do the opposite. This, the, the whole point of this is that I don't look like everybody else. Um, I, I think I'm probably somewhere in between those two things. You know, I, I appreciate it when people dress up more. Um, but I also, I'm glad there are people who are norm core or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm glad that not everyone's a dandy. I thought that would be insufferable <laughs> and, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel quite as excited about it. I think if it was the normal thing to do, if it was the regular thing, you know, it wouldn't be special in the same way. I suspect the second answer was the more honest one uh, for the true uh, dandies. I think the se- yeah, I think the second answer was the more honest one. But also, I, th- I think the first answer was like it was just it was. I think that came from people who didn't really give it a lot of thought. Mm. Um, I think it came it came a lot from people who were into vintage clothes. That's they said that a lot because I think they looked at old photographs and saw er- you know everyone's in a suit and a tie and a dress and a bonnet and. They thought, oh, doesn't everyone look so neat and tidy? And also, it's like, well, they, first of all, they probably dressed up for that photograph, you know. Um, <laughs> they were wearing the best they had. Yeah, they didn't exactly. Have, didn't have yeah. many clothes back then. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I'm glad we're not all dandies, but I also I, I appreciate the proliferation of interest in this in the subject of clothing that's happened. Um, Would you have made the cut for your own book? Ah. Um, they so the the, the publisher f- floated that in the first book and said like oh are are you going to be in it as well? And I w- was reluctant because for the same reason that I was we were sort of reluctant to put um uh what's it called um like designers and and tailors in the book because we didn't we didn't just want people selling products it felt like my my voice is throughout the book and I have the whole introduction to like share my opinions with people. And there are pictures of me and Rose sort of candid pictures of us at work in the, in the introduction. Um, and so I, I didn't think it was necessary. Now the question of whether I would make the cut, um, I think by, by, I like to think by purely visual standards, I, I match enough of the guys who, who made it into the book that I, I could, I could get in there. Um, but one of the other things we heard from one of the guys was that you that you can't 
you can't call yourself a dandy. He said, it's like a knighthood. He said, it's okay if other people call you a dandy, but if you go around calling yourself a dandy, you've kind of, uh, you've, um, I don't know, seeded the, the field or something. You've, you're, uh, it's, that's, you know, but then there are other people who are happy to call themselves dandies, you know, or they, they use dandy as their name, you know. I think it's quite perceptive to say that you can't call yourself one. I think, uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, with that. And I, I sort of agree with that. Um, I, I definitely, well, I mean, one of the things about working on these books is just how much it changed my style. I'm, I'm sure with Rose as well, just spending so much time with these men, uh, especially seeing their homes was a big deal. Uh, I really, I had spent so much of my life thinking about clothing and buying clothing and wearing clothing and then seeing people's interiors and being like, Oh my God, that was like a revelation to how their personality spread to their interior decoration. And something that I hadn't, hadn't really, I don't know for, for what it seems so obvious to me now, but for one reason or another, it, it wasn't something that I thought as much about nearly as much about, you know, I, I buy furniture that I liked or that I could afford, but I wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing where now I probably spend just as much time thinking about how my apartment looks as, as how my wardrobe looks. Um, so that's, uh, that was a big thing. And, but just learning about all these men and their stories and, and where their style comes from was a huge, uh, had a huge effect on how I look at clothing and dressing. And I think the same goes for Rose. Our styles have changed a lot since that first book. I think I was much more, I wore a lot of color when we started set out to do the first book, but I, my my style was a bit more kind of vintagey conservative, I guess. I was more, I was probably more Duke of Windsor, proud boy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my style was pure proud boy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Interesting though what you say about their apartments, because that tells me that they're spending a lot of time not only on their clothes but they also have enough time to spend on their surroundings, mm. which brings me to something that me and my wife have been discussing recently. Uh, we realized that when buying something new, it was always in our minds that it would be sold on at some point. Mm. So we weren't really buying right. it for ourselves, but yeah, for the next owner. Yeah. And that goes for cars, houses, furniture, mm. whatever. And it's quite a strange mindset not to yeah. actually be buying it for yourself. That's really interesting. Um, huh. I, it's funny. My wife, almost all of her clothes are vintage or, or she finds them at thrift stores and stuff like that. She, almost all of her stuff is secondhand and it's fantastic. It's very rare that she'll buy a new piece of clothing. Um, so I think she's probably more, more kind of keyed into that way of thinking. I don't, we don't have kids. So I, I, I don't think of things in terms of what, what, what's going to be, you know, the next generations immediately, my, ne you know, you know, what my next generation would have, but, um, I don't know. That's fascinating. I, the, the thing that I decided, sort of like when I got to a certain age and I could, I had a little bit more financial security and a little bit more kind of confidence in my own taste and stuff is I, I made a decision to not buy, um, like, uh, to not settle for like stopgap things. Like if I, if I needed a new coffee table, I was going to wait until I found the right one rather than go to Ikea and just like get something to fill the space and the time. Mm. Um, 
I learned that it was better to wait around until I found something I really loved uh, than to just sort of impulsively get something because I felt like I needed it. Um, there's that. And then the other thing is one, two of the men in the second book, uh, Mark Haldeman and James Aguiar, who are, have incredible style and fantastic homes. They've got a, a, an apartment in Brooklyn and a, a place upstate New York. And they're really, really good interior decoration. And we asked them a lot about how they do their interiors. And they said the first thing, they said that if, you, if you're if you going to an antique shop or a flea market or a estate sale or anything, and you see something that you really like and you can afford it, get it, and then worry about where it goes later. They said, if you follow that instinct, instead of thinking like, oh, is this gonna, where am I going to put this when I bring it home? They said, if you follow your instincts for like, uh, I mean, obviously within the, 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 thing of having enough room for the stuff. I said, you don't, don't, it doesn't, doesn't, it's not licensed to just become a hoarder and buy a bunch <laughs> of storage units and just put a, put a whole bunch of stuff in storage. They said, like, if, if you think, if you see something you like and you think you have the room for it and you can afford it, go for it. Um, because your intuition on these things is generally right and you'll probably be able to find a place for it. Um, and that's, I think that can also probably apply to clothes, you know. It's also a very dangerous thing when it comes to clothes because you'll buy lots of stuff which you don't know how you'll use it. But that's true. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think clothes. I I I've, talk, I've talked to so many people about how they shop for clothing, and obviously being in the in the custom tailoring business, that's that's a whole different way of shopping because people you're sort of sitting down. I think of my clients as kind of co-designers. They're sitting down with me, and we're we're designing their suit together. Um, and that's for people who've never done that before. That can be quite exciting. You know, they get to actually have a hand in what their what their own clothing is going to look like. They can picture something, or they can get inspiration online, and and then make it a reality. And that's not something they usually get to do. Um, then I have my way of shopping has always been, and I, this I think goes back to my subcultural thing and my kind of coveting certain specific, very specific items or brands. Would be I would get something very specific in my head. And then I would go out looking for that specific thing. It would be like, okay, I, you know, oh, I really want a cream-colored Barracuda Harrington jacket, you know. Um, and I would hunt everywhere until I could find one that I could afford. Um, that was when I was younger. I'm sure the internet probably, you know, I could type that in now and find all kinds of stuff. But um, so for me, it was always hunting out a specific piece and going to multiple places until I found exactly the right thing I wanted. Uh, and I often didn't find what I wanted. It was very frustrating because I would picture the thing in my head that I wanted. Um, whereas I, plenty of other people, but my wife included, uh, will go to go to a store and see what's there. You know, hmm. uh, they'll be, oh, I'm you know I, I'm going to go shopping. I, I feel like I could use some new clothes. I'm going to go to you know the the high street or go to the mall or go someplace and and see what's see what's there. Um, and then they'll go and they'll say, oh, you know, this, this would look good on me. I think I'll get this. Uh, th that's never how I thought about it, which is, it's, it's very nice now that I can make design on my own clothing because I don't have to worry about not finding it. Um, and I think part of this also goes to how, I think there also might be a, a sort of gender difference there. Um, because part of it goes to how, how things in general are sold to men and women in very different ways. Whereas when, the way things are marketed to men is very often using facts and figures and numbers and statistics, uh, whereas things are marketed much more to women in just terms of the, the final image. You know, it's it's wear this dress and look beautiful. Whereas with with men's stuff, it's like, oh, this watch has you know this many, uh, you know, it's this many carrots and this much, this many complications and all this kind of stuff. 
um, or this car has this much horsepower. You never see a woman go into a, 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 a dress shop and say, you know, what's the thread count on this, right? Whereas you've got yeah. guys, guys will come to me and they'll ask me about the thread count. I have to then explain to them that like a thread count, the thread count is, you know, one of many things. But I think, feel like men have been kind of trained to think in terms of uh, if I'm going to spend money on something, I should there should be some kind of numbers I can point to or figures that I can point to, some quantitative thing that will explain that will explain why this is uh, a nice item. You know, men men just have to know. That's why we would never ask for directions. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, and I think, and I also I think the idea of connoisseurship is something that has is kind of been a way that things have marketed to men this idea that oh you'll be you can be an expert you can show off a little bit you can say like oh oh you like this watch like let me tell you a little bit about it uh you know maybe it gives you license to mansplain perhaps you know uh, and be an insufferable bore at parties by telling people <laughs> it's just it's just funny this is one of the things that my, my friend kamau who's as mentioned who's earlier who's the last guy in the second book in his interview he also talked a lot about going to menswear events and being in a room full of guys all talking about the stitching on the shoulder of their jacket and him just being bored out of his mind, even though he loves clothing, but that's not what he was interested. He said he, and I think he has, there's a quote in there that's something like, you know, cool suit. What did you do in it? Um, and I think that's, that's a great way of thinking about it. It's not, you know, it's, it's, you can fetishize the object as much as you want and, dig deep into its construction and all that kind of stuff. And there's plenty of people who that's the joy they get out of it. Um, but for me, it's, it's very much kind of clothes are something we live in and, um, it's the life that you lead in them. That's the interesting thing. Um, yeah. And if you're, and if you're going to pay so much attention to the clothes that you wear, uh, you should try to live a life that's worthy of, of those clothes. I think, you know, whatever that might be for you. Wise words, definitely. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I have absolutely no follow-up question to that at all. <laughs> good. <laughs> I'm just struck by it. I see we've been talking now for a good hour yeah. and a half. Anything you'd like to sort of mention in clo closing? Any thoughts? Uh, other than uh, that, I would love to be back on again. Um, <laughs> uh, no, this is I mean, this is so much fun. I, I hope I haven't uh, – I, I know I – run off of the mouth a lot and talk and talk and talk and talk. Um, so I hope I have, <laughs> I hope I've given you enough space to actually ask the questions that you need. Um, it been excellent. Uh, excellent. Okay. Um, Natty, thanks for being my guest. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. Really a great pleasure. And bye-bye um, for now. Yeah. Speak soon. And that was all for this week's episode of Garmology. Thank you to Nathaniel Adams for being my guest this week. You can find him on the web as nattyadams.com or on Instagram as nattyadams. If you'd like to get in touch to suggest uh, new guests, give me some comments or feedback, send me an email at welldresseddad at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the pod, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash garmology. There's a link in the bio as well here. Um, if you'd like to find my blog, welldressedad.com, follow me on Instagram at, well, predictably, welldressedad. So, 
until next week bye bye <laughs>